This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Have a listen to this. Have a listen to this. Now, that kind of talk this week dragged Australia's share market to a two-year low. There are, of course, complex reasons for that. He was the big spender. The big spender. Doing the grocery shopping could take a huge chunk out of the family budget. And that's finance. Hello and welcome to Comedian versus Economist. We demystify the world of money and help you get a handle on the bigger picture. My name's Adam and we're joined as always by my little older brother and real life economist, Thomas. Hi, Thomas. Yeah, g'day, Adam. How you going? Uh, doing well. I'm in holiday mode. I just got back from Cairns, so I'm relaxed. Oh. So you'll probably notice that coming through in, the, in my tone throughout the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no time to relax, Thomas. Big show coming up. <laughs> uh, let's get into it. Uh, could NASA soon be paying off your mortgage? Uh, is their shiny new telescope so good it can spot spare change behind your couch? Uh, or have they found something else? We'll find out. Uh, and, Thomas, we're playing Battle of the Sexes. We've got some icy cold cans of Coke to give away. The lines are open. Call now, 1-800-CVE, if you think you know your stinks from your stonks. It's men versus women in the Battle of the Sexes, investor style. Uh, Joel sent us a, a great email saying how much he loved the show and how funny he thought I was. Uh, I stopped reading there. But he also had an economics <laughs> question, which I'm hoping that you read. So we'll find out. Did Thomas read the rest of the email? But first, they were once all about cooling the planet. Now they want to freeze the rents. Thomas, good plan or do the Greens just need to chill? Oh, so many puns. (laughs) Working on that poolside, haven't you? (laughs) Yeah. So the Greens Greens are calling for a rent freeze for two Mm. years. They want rents to be frozen for two years. Uh, And then after that, they want to see rental increases capped at 2% uh, every two years. Can they do it? I mean, can anyone do it? Can the government freeze rents? Isn't isn't like if I own a house and I want to rent my house, mm. don't I get to decide the rent that I charge? Uh, yes, at the moment that's true. Well, uh, yeah, but I don't like. Yeah, it's difficult, but mm. it's. Uh, I mean, this is this is the federal greens that are talking about this. Rents are overseen by the states. I'm pretty sure. Um, so you'd need like federal and state legislation to make it happen, but. You know, anything's possible in theory. Like you, you just got to, <laughs> where there's a will, there's a legislative way. Yeah, but it's got to be in practice too. You can't just, otherwise, like, like I could come out with a policy that says, I think we should give everybody $5 million. Mm. And everyone would go, well, I, I like that. Mm. Um, let's vote for Adam because he's, uh, okay. he's on the money. He knows what's, he knows what's up. <laughs> he knows what the people need. Yeah, right. Well, okay, so there's two separate questions there. Like is it practical and is it mm. a good idea? Right. Um, practical, I think probably like, yeah, I could imagine it. Is it a good idea? I don't know. That's a, that's a sort of a, a value question there. 
I mean, I mm. think it's I think it's a reasonable time to be asking that question. You know, rents are going up ten percent year on year at the moment, at the same time that real wages are falling. So renters are really getting it in the neck um, mm. at the moment, and yeah, and and, you, and I think you can make you make a good argument that a lot of that has come from the overclocking of the stimulus support post COVID, which mm. put a lot of money into a competitive rental market at the same time as the rental market got extra competitive. And so all of that support money just got sucked up into, into rents and, got, and bid up rents. And right. so I think, you, I think you could, it's reasonable to say like, well, the government made this problem to some hmm. extent, therefore the government could have a role in fixing it. I think that's reasonable. So is the, because, you know, the RBA obviously controls all the levers in terms of interest rates and things like that. Yeah, one lever. One lever. <laughs> the it's lever. A big lever. So is it, a, is, it, is it an RBA kind of problem to solve or is it more of a government policy problem to solve or is it kind of no one's problem to solve in a sense? It's government. It's got nothing to do with the RBA. But right. it's not really... I mean, this is the thing, like rents go up. No one sees that as a problem. A lot of mm. people, property investors, see it as a great thing because their returns go up. Mm. Um, and so you sort of have this situation where no one's, no one's really taking it on as a problem. It's the same story with housing affordability. You know, if house prices are expensive, that sucks if you're trying to buy a house. But for everyone else, it's kind of like either like neither here nor there or a good thing. Right. And yeah, so that's sort of, sort of where it falls. And, and where do you sit? So where do economists sit on the idea of rent freezes? Uh, Wait and see what happens. Yeah. Just, <laughs> we'll explain it in hindsight. I think we'll just hold our fire till after the fact. <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, typically, like the, stand, the textbook economics response would be that rent freezes are not a great idea um, because you create a distortion in the market and that creates other consequences. Like what? Like a black market for rentals, for example. Like oh, yeah. places where you have seen rent, uh, rent, rental caps come in that creates a bit of like back market where like they're sort of under the money, under the table money going back and forth to like secure the rental housing mm. so it sort of come so that sort of puts that out of the market but like i find that a bit of a wishy-washy argument because like there's a there's a lot of places where we don't let the market have free run of things where it's just not a good idea mm. like for example like you ban assault rifles like that's a good policy it's interfering with the market for assault rifles <laughs> <laughs> It's artificial. Boy, did it ever. <laughs> I've had to go to the dark web now to get my assault rifles. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So, like, it interferes with the market, but, and that has consequences. So, you now have mm. to police that and you have to sort of monitor the, the, the dark web and whatever. But, like, there are consequences that are worth bearing. It's the same story here, I think. Like, freezing rents has consequences. But maybe those consequences, dealing with those consequences is better than dealing with, mm. you know, renters getting it in the neck. And I think that that's a sort of a value question. What are some of the consequences you're talking about with freezing rent? To be honest, it's not all that, all that evident to see what the, the consequences are. One is, one is the potential to create this sort of black market effect. And, mm. But you can sort of like create legislation to sort of like outlaw that and then you've got to police it or whatever and that's all right. Mm. I mean, the, the interesting thing about the rental market is that it's, 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 it's supply constrained already. So one of the arguments is if you cap, 
cap rents, then that creates a that distorts the market signal going to property investors to uh, supply more rental housing, and there and therefore you end up with a shortage. That's that's the sort of the standard answer. Right. So people so people who own properties are going well. I'm not going to put it on the market because rents are now capped and I can't make as much from. The renter, is that what you're saying? So like Yeah, well this is where the argument gets really stupid. So <laughs> it it's true it's true to like to the to the extent that it stops someone constructing a new rental property, mm. like building a new one and bringing it to the market, that might be seen as a problem because you get less supply than you otherwise would and that's not a great thing. You end up with a worse shortage. This, uh, there's this idea that people are running that that landlords will go on strike and that they won't make their properties available or they'll exit the market and then there won't, there'll be less rental properties available. It's such a stupid argument <laughs> and you hear it so often. 95% of investors buy existing houses. They don't buy new houses. So most 95% of investors are not creating new stock. Mm. Um, so they're not bringing supply to the market. Two, if an investor sells and goes on strike, who are they selling to? They're selling mm. to a first home buyer or an owner-occupier. Owner and the, the balance doesn't change. You've lost the rental property, but you've also lost the renter because they're now a homeowner. Right. You know, so to sell the idea that a rental strike, landlord's going on strike is a bad thing, is sort of saying that the that first homeowners buying their first home is a bad thing. Mm. Do you see what I mean? Like it's such a stupid argument, but I've seen it so often in the media the past couple of weeks, picking it up like landlords going on strike and that'll make the rental crisis worse. It's mm. just not true. It's just so stupid. Unless they're so well off that they can just go on strike and hold on to their house <laughs> and just have no one in it. Like that would be like real commitment yeah. from the from the landlord. That would be a true strike. That is true strike. I, I think it's yeah. the wording. Like yeah. a strike would imply that they're they're like taking no action. We're like we're <laughs> sitting on it. We're just not yeah. we're we're just gonna sit down and not do anything, which is the classic strike. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like if the the train drivers go on strike, they don't just go start driving buses. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Thomas, NASA found something interesting in space. Is it mm. aliens? No, no, it's not. It's a rock. Huh. It's a rock? Yeah. We, we had those already. We'd already <laughs> discovered rocks. Yeah, this is a big rock. It's a right. really Ooh. big rock. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, there's an asteroid uh, the size of Massachusetts. Massachusetts. In the States. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit of American-centric. Weird reference. Yeah. (laughs) Shout out to all our American listeners out there. Apologies if you're tuning in from Australia with the bulk of our listeners. Yeah, you just imagine NASA doing the international news conference. (laughs) Found an asteroid the size of Massachusetts. So I was like, what? Sorry for our Australian listeners. That's about the size of Udna (laughs) Dada. Uh, I think Massachusetts is quite big, 140 miles in diameter. So, okay, right. Yeah, pretty, pretty so, sizable. Udnadadarish? <laughs> is it? Oh, mm. yeah. I don't know. No idea. It's an, interest, it's an interest, it's a rare one apparently, this, this asteroid. They're calling mm. it 16 Psyche. I don't know where they get that name from. But, um, you don't want to know where scientific names come from, I don't think. That's, mm. Anyway. Yeah, okay. Yeah, 16 anyway, Psyche. 16 Psyche. So this one, is, it's rare because it's entirely made of iron and nickel. Ooh. Yeah, so, so most are just rock, like generic rock and ice. Um, but this one seems to be entirely made of iron and nickel. Right. Wow. They say that if 
you could access all of that iron and nickel, it mm. would be worth ten thousand quadrillion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> was the was the NASA spokesperson a four year old by any chance? <laughs> Be worth like a bazillion dollars. <laughs> this is the size of Massachusetts. <laughs> Massachusetts. <laughs> but no, no, that's that. No, this is ten thousand quadrillion dollars. So ten followed by yeah, eighteen zeros. So how? Well, okay. A few questions. Mm. How far away is it? This rock? Is it a long way? Like, can we get to it? Uh, no. Well, it's not. It's a long way. It's between Mars and Jupiter. Right. In the asteroid belt there. It's like a bazillion light years bazillion. away. <laughs> <laughs> Said NASA's spokesperson. <laughs> it's like way, 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 way up there. Because yeah. the obvious question is, how, like, what are we doing still sitting around talking about it? Why aren't we mining it already? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, no, it's, it's, it's too far away to mine. But this is actually one of the things... So FinFest is coming up. Mm. As you know, we're doing a panel on investing in the future. Are we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, should, I should start making some notes. <laughs> no, no, you're just, you're just oh. the eye candy. I, 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 take, I take care of the notes. Yeah. Hello, ladies. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right. No, so, yeah, so, yeah, so, like, I'm look, so we're, we've got some um, epic panelists coming up talking about mm. the future, but so I've been, I've been researching some future trends, but asteroid mining is, is one of the big trends that, that people right. are anticipating over the next 20 or 30 years, just because there's asteroids out there that are just worth a lot of money like this. I just have a lot of uh, epic resources. So no one owns, obviously no one owns the asteroid yet. No. Well, no one we know of. No. <laughs> Right, we'll go, we'll go and claim it, and then like Zorg from <laughs> some other planet, be like, "Oi, you're trespassing on my asteroid. Get out of my um, rock garden." <laughs> no, I mean, it, yeah, it's it's the wild west out there. So it'll be, I mean, a lot of yeah. Who knows how how that works? Mm. Yeah, and then who knows how you how you mine something like that? Like whether you break it up or people talking about like bringing bringing asteroids like this back into near-Earth orbit and mm. mining them there seems a little risky. But, yeah, yeah. but there are many other reasons you have sort of like mining rigs just trucking stuff back from, from the asteroid no, belt. No, 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 no Thomas. No. We've covered it on the show already. Andrew Forrest has an infinity train. <laughs> this... <laughs> He's so far ahead of his He's time. He's so far ahead. He's going to have aliens wearing R.M. Williams boots, loading his infinity train from a space asteroid, Psyche 16, bringing it back to Earth. That's how we get it here. Yeah, but so that's the future of mining apparently. Like we'll, get, we'll be like tapping all the resources in space. Yeah, you're right. I, do, I mean it does feel a lot like we're just like Earth was, you know, people talk about there's no plan B. Mm. I feel like Earth was almost is almost becoming our trial run society mm. of like uh, humanity. <laughs> like yeah. it's getting away from us now. It's fair <laughs> we had, we had a good crack, <laughs> and but there's a lot of seems like there's a lot of energy being invested in mining outer space now that we've dug up the whole planet Earth. Mm. Um, mm. Because I I saw the other day too that they've now worked out how to generate oxygen on Mars. Oh, right, right. So they can, like, produce oxygen from Mars's atmosphere. Ah. 
Does it involve trees? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, uh, yeah. I don't know how yeah. they do it. Yeah. I don't know why they wanted it. Well, they, they're talking about, you know, human habitation on Mars, mm-hmm. um, being able to, you know, I don't know if it involves space trees. Jeff Bezos the, uh, a couple of months ago came out with the idea he wants to, he wants to offshore all heavy industry from Earth. So right. you, you put all of your, like, um, your, your carbon-intensive industry in space so it can just <laughs> release carbon into space and then, then you zone Earth residential <laughs> or light commercial. Uh, this is what I mean. We're not solving like let's stop making carbon. Yeah. Let's let's just, <laughs> we just need to stick it somewhere else mm. and make it make it Zork's problem. Yeah, yeah. So Thomas, that ten thousand quadrillion dollars that we talked about, I read a stat that said that would give everyone on Earth would be enough at least to give everyone on Earth about one point three billion. Is that right? Yeah, that's well. That's how the mass breaks down on ten. Mm. If you divide ten thousand quadrillion by seven point <laughs> five billion people, you get one point three billion dollars each. Just be a big calculator. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but it, but it doesn't work out that way because you can't like if you just flooded the iron and nickel markets mm. with iron, like a Massachusetts worth of iron and nickel, mm. um, it would crash the price of iron and nickel. Mm. And so you wouldn't, you wouldn't get $10,000 quadrillion. It's worth that much at current market prices. But if you had that much, it would be worth a lot less. And, that, and that's the really interesting thing about asteroid mining is, and, and with renew, renewable energy, as those goes, get better, the marginal cost of resources and the marginal cost of energy goes towards zero. And so then you're looking at a like a really interesting economy, like resources and energy have been, you know, the, the most expensive things in the economy for a long time. If they go to zero, then it's just a, it's just a brand new world. And if everyone gets 1.3 billion, like that's going to have a pretty significant impact on inflation. <laughs> yes, yes. Like a loaf of bread will be like $12 million. <laughs> <laughs> All right, why don't we leave it there? We'll take a break, grab a quick word from this week's sponsor and be back with more Comedian versus Economist right after this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back here on Comedian versus Economist. You can check us out on Instagram and Facebook at CVE Podcast or why not send us an email, cve at equitymates.com or via the website, equitymates.com forward slash CVE. Thomas, mm. there's a bit of a, uh, a bit of a debate raging, is there, around who's the better investor, men or women? What's going on? 
No, I think it's fairly settled, actually. Oh, I cool. think I think women are better. Did we win? <laughs> no, we didn't. No, we didn't. Uh, no, oh, yeah. Well. Like, I think there's a few studies now that, that saying that uh, definitely on average women tend to outperform men in their mm. results. There's quite a few of those. But, yeah, it's, it's still interesting in the sense that um, 58%, if you look at share market investors in the ASX, 58% are men, still 42% are women. Mm. Uh, that's up. A lot from, you know, prior to two thousand and ten, it was only thirty one percent. So it's 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 up a lot, which is which is great. This is where I think maybe we'd be benefited by having some guests on the show. Perhaps we could have a female guest who might explain this rather than no, I got, I got <laughs> rather it, than us <laughs> poor performing men <laughs> explaining why this is happening. Yeah. Uh, a bit of, of man explaining. Anyway, go ahead. The puzzle is that. Women perform better than men, uh, yet they still account for a smaller proportion of the ASX and they hold less money in their, in their portfolio. So the average portfolio for men is 155000 for women it's 90000 hmm. So there's still, there's still a big gap. Yeah, in the number of investors and in, in the funds held. Are we talking, we're just talking retail investors here, talking like sort of the yes. classic mum and dad investors? Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, retailing. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like I read a couple of pieces on this. One of them, said, I read one that's a few, like a money coach, Natasha Jansons, says that um, women have a perfectionist tinge. Mm-hmm. Um, they get caught in analysis paralysis. They they, they want to be perfect at it. They they lack a sort of certain confidence, and then that holds them back, keeps them out of the market. And Karen Ely from Women Talking Finance said it's like when you go to the gym, there's this area where all the muscle men go to work out and some women just won't go there. Mm. Many women I speak to tend to feel they need to have all the boxes ticked before they can press go. Unlike men who tend to feel confident and willing to take a bit of a risk, even when they lack the skills to do so, Adam. I was still thinking about the area of the gym with all the muscle-bound men and how I'm also scared to go there. (laughs) Women tend to hold much more of their portfolio in ETFs rather than individual stocks. Part of this story is that that women are underconfident, are less confident than they should be. Men are more confident than they should be, much more confident than they should be. There was was an excellent podcast on this. Um, I I think it was Michael Lewis, Against the Rules who talked quite a lot about in depth, who's doing a series on experts. I think it's current season, season three maybe. Yeah, it sort of unpicked a lot of, a lot of this around, around confidence and experts, yeah, particularly in investing, that men were much more confident even though they were much more likely to be wrong or be <laughs> like <laughs> to not do very well, whereas women did perform better even though they were less likely to be involved or less likely to, to buy in. But... They'd done studies that, yeah, that, that said exactly that, that mm. men would happily explain why they were buying, you know, Tesla or whatever <laughs> and then watch Tesla go to the... But they'd still be confident about it, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, one of my managers, a woman I used to work for at the RBA, talked about this saying like there's just a sort of a, a confidence kind of dynamic that men are taught to be confident and women are taught to be less confident. And so, like, and that, and that plays out in lots of different things. Like, if if a woman says confidently that I can cook, mm. you know that she's probably got restaurant experience at a five star restaurant. If mm. she's that confident, if a man says confidently I can cook, yeah, you know he can cook an egg. Yeah, basically. or he does barbecues on does the weekend. Bar- yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. And it's probably true of investing. Like, if a woman says confidently 
I'm a good investor. She's probably mm. got a hundred million dollars funds under management or something. Yeah, yeah. If a guy says that, he's bought some meme stocks on Selfwell. <laughs> yeah, and you can see this. The other thing I picked up is the MIT had a study on panic selling mm. and they looked at the accounts of people who panic sold during downturns and found that they were more likely to be male over the age of 45 and would consider themselves as having excellent investment experience. <laughs> <laughs> Those people who thought of themselves as having excellent investment experience were more likely to freak out and dump a portfolio <laughs> in a downturn. <laughs> Well, that's, that's where you get most of your experience is in those <laughs> tough times. <laughs> School of hard knocks, all those kind of macho bravado terms that, that we like to talk about as making us more expert is, oh, I've seen some things. <laughs> I remember 2008, I sold at the bottom. Gee, I learned some lessons. You haven't seen what I've seen. All right, so, so what do we do with, all the, with this, this newfound knowledge? Well, they talk about the... the the key to being a good investor is working with your biases and recognizing when that you're going to be emotionally driven, that when mm. the market's going down and there's a lot of panic, it's really hard to hold your head and stay the course. And, and it, there's an emotional element to investing and you need to sort of be aware of this. Um, and I think it's true of the bias. So like I think it's probably the case that men need to read this and go like, okay, I need to dial it back a bit. I'm prob probably not as good as I think I am, and I mm. need to adjust my investing approach for that reality. Women, on the other hand, could go the other way and go like, I'm probably better than I think I am. I can hit this with more confidence. So maybe I shouldn't have rushed into crypto and NFTs. <laughs> <laughs> no. Like Anna told me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, finally on the show, Joel has sent us an email, cve at equitymates.com. Um, it's a really nice email, actually. He said, just want to say thanks for a cracking podcast. Love listening to the show. Uh, he's, a, he's worked as a diplomat and a policymaker. Uh, find your show well-researched, engaging, breath of fresh air. Maybe it's just because of my weird sense of humour, but I also find myself laughing out loud. Joel, I'd like to think that's because of my jokes, <laughs> not because of your sense of humour, but I appreciate it anyway. <laughs> Uh, uh, he said he's currently doing some work for the Victorian government uh, around place-based economic development. Thomas, would love to hear your thoughts on what these big structural changes, hybrid working, industry 4.0, climate change, etc., mean for the future of cities. Oh, big, Take it away. Yeah. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> I've got my kudos and I'm leaving the building. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, big questions, big questions. I've, I don't have a heap of to say about this, but it is interesting. Like I have been following a debate about the decentralization of the economy for 20 years. And from the digital age onwards, soon from 2000 and the internet, people talked about how this was going to decentralize the economy and we're going to, the cities were going to become redundant. And then it became this sort of puzzle where for 20 years, it didn't happen like we thought it was going to. Cities almost became more concentrated and more centralised um, and regions really suffered and, yeah, and it became this sort of political thing like every election there's a, there's a scheme to energise the regions and to drive economic development in the regions and push, push the economy into more regional centres. And it hasn't really happened. 
but then COVID came along and then that created a sort of a radical shift and it, you, you kind of did start to see these yeah, green shoots of, of decentralization. So it's going, to re- it's going to be really interesting the next couple of years, I think, to see whether it, uh, whether it sticks around. Mm. Yeah, I think you look at sort of what's in the road of decentralization, like why workers need to come into the workplace. Like there, oh, there's one aspect of it, yeah, like whether industries themselves decentralize and workplaces leave the cities or whether cities themselves decentralize their workforce and create sort of more working from working remotely kind of opportunities. Mm. I don't know, like there's certain jobs that you can't decentralize, you can't do remotely, like manufacturing, for example. So that mm. needs to be there. Building cities. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the other place you got to, why you need to come into work is so you can be managed. Mm. And like, I think dad talks a lot about this, about how tricky it's going to be to manage remote workforces and, you know, make sure people are doing what they're supposed to be doing or just doing anything. Mm. Yeah. And I don't know that we've got the tools for that. But that's just a perception thing. Like I've just spent a week with dad up in Cairns. And I think it's a perception thing is that, and that's changing it because it's people are now seeing the sort of evidence from COVID that people are working harder, they're working longer, they're kind of, that productivity, if anything, has gone up since mm. people have started working from home, you know, where it's mm. practical. Mm. And that that was just a kind of a misconception pre, pre-COVID pre was mm. that <laughs> and it showed a real, I think, a real lack of faith in everybody's workforce <laughs> was everyone just assumed that if people started working from home that they'd literally start working like 20% out of a day and just skiving off the whole day, yeah, whereas yeah, that yeah. hasn't, that's not, that's not what's materialised at all. To the surprise no. of most people, I think. I, I was surprised that. Yeah, I think everyone. It's not, not just the bosses that were surprised by that. I think yeah. everyone's like, wow, really? We just did that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Well, it's Elon Musk saying, like, if people want to work from home, they should pretend to work somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's that, it, it's that mindset. And I think, mm. I think finally through COVID it's proven that People can be productive at home. Yeah, yeah, but that—I mean—that's part of it. But yeah, I mean, you still got to manage. You got to manage for quality. Like, you know, make sure people are doing what they're supposed to be doing and doing it well. Mm. But I think, yeah, the tools—the tools are emerging for that. Mm. Um, you know, obviously, it's going to be virtual reality. Yeah, yeah, we're all going to be high fiving in the metaverse. Yeah, let's <laughs> um, see if after work drinks in the metaverse. <laughs> Uh, All right, why don't we leave it there? Uh, Thank you, Thomas, for your thoughts this week. Thank you very much out there for tuning in. We really do appreciate all your support. Yeah, don't forget uh, FinFest coming up soon, as Thomas mentioned, we'll be there presenting uh, or hosting a panel actually. Uh, Happening October 15th, head to equitymates.com slash FinFest for all the information. Thank you again for listening and we'll talk to you again next week. Bye. Comedian vs. Economist is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Comedian vs. Economist are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of Comedian vs Economist acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.